Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Shaking the Tree, Searching for Seaman Elm. And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. And now, on with our show. So what do John Dillinger, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Lindbergh kidnapping have to do with a missing American sailor who was killed during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941? Well, stay tuned to today's episode of No Home for Heroes, and we'll explain it all. And we have a special guest to help us. United States Navy Captain Chris Stone, currently the commanding officer of the USS Normandy. Captain, welcome to our show. I think we've all heard a little bit about the famous battleship sunk at Pearl Harbor, but tell us some of the USS Arizona's details. Thank you, Rick. The USS Arizona BB-39 was a Pennsylvania-class battleship with a standard displacement of 29,158 tons, a length of 608 feet, and a beam of 97 feet. The famed USS Arizona originally was designed to contain a crew of 55 officers and 860 men. The main armament of the USS Arizona consisted of 12 14-inch guns and four triple turrets. She was reassigned from the west coast of the United States to Hawaii in May 1940, due to growing concerns over relations with the Empire of Japan. Thanks, Captain. Now you currently command a United States Navy guided missile cruiser, the USS Normandy. How would the modern Normandy compare to the USS Arizona? There are a number of differences, but uh, there are a lot of similarities, too. The construction of the, the ship itself, we've learned a lot, frankly, in the last 80 years about the construction of ship, the amount of armor plating to put, the compartmentation uh, to keep the watertight integrity of the ship. The physical characteristics are remarkably similar. USS Normandy is a 10,000-ton warship. Her length is 567 feet. She's got a beam of about half of what Arizona did with 55 feet. The crew size is also starkly different. Uh, with uh, the advent of uh, electronics and modern controls, we can man and, and properly run the ship with uh, significantly less sailors. So I have a complement on Normandy of about 40 officers and roughly about 360 sailors, both men and women, uh, on board Normandy. But the real difference in, uh, is the armament. Uh, the Arizona's 14-inch guns were quite impressive. Uh, on Normandy, we have 5-inch guns. Uh, but we have a number of other systems that more than compensate for the difference in the caliber of the gun in that in addition to guns that can fire tens of miles, uh, we have modern missile systems that can fire anywhere from hundreds of miles to as many of a thousand miles. But the similarity that is the most stark is, despite the fancy electronics and the modern weapon systems, the combat power of the United States Navy remains today as it was then the American sailor. On the morning of December 7th, 1941, the USS Arizona was moored inboard of the repair ship USS Vestal when the Japanese struck Pearl Harbor. 
The destruction of the ship was the work of the Japanese horizontal bombers, which struck her with several armor-piercing bombs. Some bombs caused minor damage to her after the, in her after and midship areas, but one bomb penetrated beside her forward turret and set off a massive explosion. The preliminary damage report filed on 28 January 1942 listed seven bomb hits as well as one torpedo hit on the port bow forward. This last hit was based on a report from the captain of the repair ship Vestal moored alongside and could not be verified at the time. One bomb was thought to have gone down her stack, but this was contradicted when the ship's superstructure was salvaged in 1942 and the funnel cap was found to be intact. A monument to the USS Arizona on Fort Island at Pearl Harbor still notes this erroneous information. In any case, the entire front half of the battleship, from in front of her first turret back into her machinery spaces, was utterly devastated. The Arizona's sides were blown out, and the gun turrets, conning tower, and much of the superstructure dropped several feet into a wrecked hull. This tipped her foremast forward, giving the wreck its distinctive appearance. Blazing furiously, the Arizona quickly settled to the bottom of Pearl Harbor. She burned from Sunday, December 7th to Wednesday, December the 10th. Her dead included Rear Admiral Isaac C. Kidd, Commander Battleship Division 1, and the ship's commanding officer, Captain Franklin Van Falkenberg. When the fires were put out, the first task was to recover the remains of crew members killed on the USS Arizona. The remains recovered from the USS Arizona were taken to the IEA landing area for possible identification. Most of the remains were not identifiable and were buried at different locations on the island of Oahu, primarily at Halava Naval Cemetery. In early 1942, Navy salvage divers used high-pressure hoses to move mud away from the sides of the ship to check the hull for damage. During these early salvage dives, additional remains were recovered from deep inside the ship. It is estimated that 900 men are entombed inside the USS Arizona today. Salvage work continued and most of the areas in 1942 above the waterline were cut away. The ship was so badly damaged and dangerous that further salvage efforts were halted. The loss of the ship and its crew is now permanently memorialized by the USS Arizona Memorial, erected across her sunken hulk at the exact spot the USS Arizona occupied on Battleship Row when she sank. Here are some basic facts about today's case. 2,388 American deaths are associated with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, including 48 civilians, and 64 Japanese deaths are ascribed to this attack. 1,177 crew members of the USS Arizona were killed during the attack on Pearl Harbor. There are approximately 124 unknowns from the USS Arizona that are buried in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, also known as the Punch Bowl, 
and 74 different grave sites. One of these unknowns will become the focus of one of my investigations while a member of the Department of Defense, Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, in 2012. But long before that assignment, I had another job that would provide me an unlikely lesson to help me solve the case of the Arizona unknown in today's case. To understand that lesson, we'll need to go back even farther in time than World War II. In the early 1930s, criminal gangs carried out large numbers of bank robberies and kidnappings in the Midwest. They used their superior firepower and fast getaway cars to elude local law enforcement agencies and avoid arrest. Many of these criminals frequently made newspaper headlines across the U.S., particularly Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger. Dillinger became famous for leaping over bank cages and repeatedly escaping from jails and police traps. These robbers operated across state lines with impunity. The director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, pressed to have their crimes recognized as federal offenses so that he and his men would have the authority to pursue them and also get the credit for capturing them. Also added to the lawless era was a very high-profile kidnapping of a baby from the home of famed aviation pioneer Charles Lindbergh, the first man to fly the Atlantic. The kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby left a famous ransom note, which became the primary clue that was used to solve that crime. When federal legislation was passed making bank robbery and kidnapping federal crimes, J. Edgar Hoover pulled out all stops to capture the culprits. His comprehensive efforts resulted in some high-profile captures or killings of John Dellinger, Machine Gun Kelly, Alvin Karpus, and the Lindbergh kidnapper, Bruno Richard Hopman. In 1939, the FBI became preeminent in the field of law enforcement professionalism, thanks in large part to changes made by Hoover, such as expanding and combining the Bureau's fingerprint files and compiling the largest collection of fingerprints to date. Hoover also helped create the FBI Laboratory and the FBI National Academy to train other law enforcement leaders around the country and later around the world. During my police career, it was my great honor to be selected to attend the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. This was a highly selective process, and only a relatively few high-level police leaders are chosen to attend the three- or four-month schools held each year. I was a member of the 143rd session of the FBI National Academy and was privileged to study many cases from the FBI's long history of criminal investigations during my classes there, including Dillinger's escapades and the Lindbergh kidnapping. While we learned many new and modern techniques of forensics, my classmates and I were also exposed to some surprisingly simple investigative techniques. I confess now that after all these years, I don't remember the exact case that helped solve the mystery of the Pearl Harbor MIA, but it was a lesson I never forgot. An armed man entered a bank and presented the teller with a note demanding money from the cash drawer. He flashed a pistol tucked in his belt, and the teller quickly complied with the robber's demand. When the robber left with a bag full of cash, 
he left the note behind. On the surface of the note, where the robber had written, Give me all the money, there did not seem to be much of a clue, and after the paper was processed for fingerprints without success, the robber's note went into the police department evidence file to be tucked away, probably forever. Unfortunately for the bank robber, the FBI agent assigned to the case carefully examined the note and had a brilliant but ridiculously simple idea to turn the note over and see what was on the back. Faint impressions on the paper led to the submission of the note to the FBI laboratory, where the impressions were found to have been made by someone writing a note on the page that had once been on top of the robber's note. Under the microscope, these faint impressions revealed a laundry list of things to do and a phone number to call. Yep, you guessed it. The phone number was the bank robber's girlfriend who soon identified the suspect for authorities. The lesson I got from that case was, simply put, always look on the back. The U.S. military had been looking for 70 years for a seaman elm who was killed at Pearl Harbor in the Japanese attack on December 7, 1941. A seaman's body had been found on board the USS Arizona, unidentified, except for a cigarette case engraved with the name Elm. But no one could find a name on the personnel list to match that body, which was ultimately designated as case unknown X-51. So Seaman Elm was buried in the punch bowl, known officially as the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. He was buried as unknown. The missing in action case landed on my desk at JPAC in April 2012, and I began pouring through the original papers and reports in the file. There were unsigned and undated scraps of papers in the files indicating that previous investigators had unsuccessfully attempted to find and correlate a Pearl Harbor casualty with the last name of Elm to our unknown X-51. The previous investigators also tried to track down any missing Pearl Harbor seaman named Elmer, or who had a girlfriend named Elmira, or who was from Elmira, New York. All of these efforts were without success. It was maddening to see the work that had been put into the case, but everyone was barking up the wrong tree. In fact, as circumstances would prove, no one could even see the tree because we were all looking at the bigger picture of the forest. I don't think I consciously knew what I was doing, but out of habit, I looked on the back of the one piece of aged paper in the file that would solve the clue, or have the clue, to solve the mystery. Someone, probably decades earlier, had transcribed what was on the cigarette case, but it wasn't Elm. The engraving on the cigarette case had periods between the letters. E period, L period, M period. I never claimed to be the brightest bulb in the box, but certainly on that day the light went off above my head. I realized immediately that we should be looking for someone with the initials E-L-M who had been on board the Arizona and not one, someone with the last name of Elm. 
In less time than it takes to listen to this podcast, I found out that there were only two servicemen with those initials killed on any ship at Pearl Harbor on 7 December 1941. One, Fireman First Class Edward Lawrence McGuckin from the battleship USS Nevada had been recovered, identified, and his body sent home to Ohio after the battle. The other was Earl Leroy Morrison, a 20-year-old seaman first class from Montana, who, you guessed it again, was assigned to the USS Arizona. On April 25, 2012, I completed my investigation and sent a formal memo asking JPAC Central Identification Laboratory, touted as one of the largest in the world, to disinter the body of Seaman Elm buried in the punch bowl and compare it to the DNA of the family of Seaman Earl Leroy Morrison. The lab refused to act on my request, and it wouldn't respond to my pleas that JPAC seek out Morrison's relative to provide a DNA sample. In fact, as I later told an NBC News investigative reporter, it's a catch-22. At JPAC, we were forbidden to talk to the families, so catch-22. You can't talk to the families until you're sure, but how do you become sure until you talk with the families and get the DNA sample? Catch-22. In August 2013, the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation received a request for a family report from Seaman Morrison's family. This investigation confirmed my original inquiry. I would love to report to you that now, almost seven years after I looked on the back of that piece of paper and found the clue to solving this history's military mystery, Seaman Morrison has been recovered, identified, and returned home to his family for burial with his name returned to him. But, that is not the case. Seaman Elm, also known as Seaman First Class Earl Leroy Morrison, still lies today in Section Q, grave number 1147 of the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Punch Bowl. On his grave marker is not his name, but this inscription. Unknown. USS Arizona. Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free to our podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of history's military mysteries missing in action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and women. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode, which I am as much in the dark about as to which of one of our over 400 cases we'll be discussing as you are. But our production engineer can't seem to make up her mind on which one to feature next. 
but I know it will be the perfect choice. Sometimes one of history's military mysteries, missing in action, is even a mystery to me until the time comes to reveal the secret. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no hero, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them.